This is episode 498 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's article, Signaling 101 for Survival. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, this episode is sponsored by Audible. Now, Audible Books allows you to listen to the best books when you are on the go. I love to listen to podcasts and audiobooks and learning while I stay busy doing other things, especially getting ready in the morning and driving. Right now, Audible is offering two free audiobook downloads when you join Audible for a trial period. And if you choose not to stay with Audible after the trial period, you still get to keep the audiobooks. Now, for more information, you can click the link in the show notes or you can go to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com forward slash Audible. Hey guys, I also like to remind you that I have the weekly Watchmen connected to the show notes and also the survey on the faith in preparedness. If you would like to fill that out, that would be great and give me a little bit more information out there on uh, how people, you know, interact with their faith and preparedness. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into the article of the podcast. It comes to us from modernsurvivalonline.com. This article is entitled, again, Signaling 101 for Survival. Now, there's a lot of videos in here. There's a lot of charts that are dealing with signaling that, of course, I'm not going to be able to uh, relay that information to you. I mean, it's not only Morse code. There's a bunch of other ones as well. So this is one that you might want to go and check this one out. The videos are, you know, are pretty good. And so there's a lot of great information here. So I'm going to go ahead and jump in, but I just wanted to let you know that this might be one that you want to go visit. I know sometimes you just listen to the to the articles on the podcast, but uh, you know this one is one that has a lot of great information, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So let's go ahead and get started. In a survival situation, communication can be vital and proficiency in signaling could save your life or at least make it a lot easier. Anybody who works in the outdoors learns at least some basic signaling. On land, woodsmen need to know where safe trails are and how to find and rescue lost adventurers. At sea, sailors need to know how to operate radios and use the international code of signals to communicate across language barriers. Up in the air, rescue pilots learn symbols or communicating with people on the ground and also use radios to coordinate traffic. Finally, of course, the armed forces of land, sea, or air need silent signals to coordinate troops and long-distance communication systems to relay intelligence. All of these are useful skills, and the more you learn, the more you understand the principles underpinning them. This article breaks down the best gear and skills to learn the art of signaling and have yet another survival skill under your belt. So let's start out with fires and smoke signals. Smoke signals and signal fires are probably some of the oldest forms of long-range communications used by the ancient Chinese, ancient Greeks, and Native Americans. To this day, different colored smoke grenades are used by military forces to indicate different positions. 
In general, smoke signals are only of use during the day since the smoke shows up against the lit background. As with any signaling method, complexity and variability allow for greater detail in communication. Dry firewood or other fuel will produce white smoke and wetter stuff, including greener wood and grass or wet leaves, will make black smoke. Of course, you will still need plenty of dry wood to keep the fire going. The College of Cardinals in the Vatican still use this distinction to communicate whether they have elected a new pope. A good video on building signal fires for smoke can be found here. So there is a link here to a video, or I'm sorry, it's embedded in the article, and it's called How to Prepare a Signal Fire for Rescue. So that was an interesting one. You might want to check that one out. The only thing about that video that I don't like is he didn't actually light it. He just kind of shows you how to set it up and how to do it. But it, it was a good video uh, to, uh, to, to look and to know, know that skill, definitely. Signal fires are useful at night. As the bright fire shows up against a dark background, sea vessels use lights to show their position at night for the same reason. The trick with the signal fire is to just build it as big as possible for maximum visibility. Smoke signals and fires, but to a lesser extent because it may be more difficult to see the distinction at night, can also convey different messages by their placement. Whether that's true or not, it's a simple idea for a pre-agreed code which could help you out one day. So next up is ground to air signals. The ground to air emergency code is very crude or is a very crude way of informing an overhead rescue team about your situation. It contains signals and symbols for only the bare minimum of important information. The first set are static symbols. These should be constructed as large and obvious as possible. So you should use material which contrasts with the background. Anything bright orange is always a good idea. Ideally, the top of the symbol should point north unless it is intuitive that it should go another way. Like on a hillside, the symbols would point up the hill even if this was south. So there's a lot of uh, symbols here like Y for yes, in for negative or no, but then there's others here like uh, a line and the greater than sign would uh, mean will attempt to take off in this direction. So there's a lot of signals here or a lot of signs here that you might wanna know. The other half of the system is made up of body signals. To stand with arms outstretched to your sides or to lie flat on your back, legs and arms extended with your arms above your head means require medical assistance, possibly because someone in dire need of medical assistance would look like this anyway. To stand with both arms raised above your head means pick us up, and to rush side on to the observer with arms extended horizontally is to say land here. Standing and waving both hands in unison side to side over your head means that a plane should not land here. Standing and waving one arm up and down beside you means use a drop message and hold both hands behind your head means we have a radio. Waving one arm up and down in front of you while side on to the observer is yes and to swing it side to side across your legs is facing, facing the observer is no. Okay, so those would be important. So next up is flares. Now, flares is a collective term for pyrotechnic devices which produce sudden bursts of light and or smoke 
for the purpose of signaling. Now, most flare technology originated for marine applications, but translates to rural and mountain user groups just as well. The very first thing to say about flares is that you should read the packaging. All relevant instructions for use and safety, which are very important, will be written on each flare and must be properly followed. There are essentially three kinds of flares, rockets, handheld, and smoke. Rockets are used to indicate your position when in distress. It is generally a good idea to set off one, wait two to three minutes, then set off a second. Other parties nearby will be alerted by the first flare, but may not have seen exactly where it came from, so they will be looking for a second one to get a fix on your direction. In a maritime setting, red flares are used only for distress, and white flares are warning of one's location to avoid collisions. On land, red flares are still for distress, though white flares may also be understood, but white flares do not have such a formalized role. Parachute flares should never be used near a helicopter as they might damage the vehicle or its crew or disable night vision equipment. Handheld flares are for pinpointing a location accurately. Once a rescue party is near you, you might set off a handheld flare to show them exactly where to look for you. The red-white distinction is less important here, especially on land. The smoke flares only come in orange, a very high contrast color. They are for use during the day to help locate a target. They are often thrown at a man overboard in maritime distress situations to keep a fix on where the casualty is. The advantage of smoke is that it contrasts with almost everything, so can be seen during the day will not disrupt a helicopter, and drifts with the wind so leaves a trail leading back to where it was set off. Orange flares are a very powerful tool and should be used when a helicopter or other rescue team is getting close during the day to give a precise location. Though designed for the marine industry, the principles in this video can be applied to any situation where you might find yourself using a flare. So there is a flare here or a video here called how to use a flare. Next is helio heliograph or signal mirror. Signal mirrors have been issued to and used by the world's military forces as recently as the 1980s and are still included in most good survival kits. They are simple, easy to use, and dependable. Signal mirrors also have the advantage of being a used method of communication that's difficult to intercept. This makes it ideal for use over medium distances as a wireless, low investment, and a very secure mode of communication. The most common kind you will find in most kits is a small rectangular mirror with a hole in the middle. The size of the mirror is directly correlated with the range of your signal. Military experiments have shown that roughly one inch equals one mile of range. Assuming the receiver is using the naked eye, obviously range is increased if the receiver has optics, binoculars, or a telescope. Because it's such a simple tool, a signal mirror can be very easily improvised. A CD or a DVD or the bottom of a can with a hole punched in it. To use the mirror, look through the hole at what you want to signal to, like a rescue plane or another person. Holding the mirror in one hand, extend the other to act as a screen onto which the reflection from the mirror will land. This is how you know where the reflection is. From there, point the reflection towards where you are signaling. 
If you don't have a hole, you can just hold out your fingers in a V in front of you, line up the bottom of the V with your target, then line up the reflection with the bottom of the V. Now for most applications, just flashing a light is enough of a signal. A more complex system of one flash for this, two for that, etc. could be useful if traveling in a group. And of course, Morse code will give you complete freedom to express whatever you want. A good way to control flashes and keep the mirror in the right place is to fix the mirror in the right position, then cover and uncover it with a hand or an opaque screen of some kind. The most common way is tilting the mirror, but that can often end up misaligning it with the target. Between them, these two videos cover the use of signaling mirrors thoroughly. So again, two videos. The first one is called Signal Mirror Use, How to Do It Right. And the second one is how to use a signal mirror. Next up is phones, cells, and sat. It should go without saying, and for most people it probably does, that you should always have a phone on you just in case. True, you probably won't get reception, but there is a chance, and chance is a lot better than nothing for sake of carrying a small box in your pack. If you do get reception and you really need it in a crisis situation, you'll be glad you have it. True, you can call, search, and rescue lifeboats, etc., but also you can call family and friends and tell them you're all right. You'll be glad you took a phone. If you don't have a reception, a phone can still be handy, if less so. The torch on the back can flash Morse code, or ripping it apart, the battery and guts can start a fire if need be, and the glass could potentially become a signal mirror. Now, a satellite phone is any mobile phone handset which transmits using a satellite connection. The big advantage over cellular connectivity, standard mobile phones, is that sat phones have coverage over far more of the planet. In most cases, all you need is a direct clear line between your sat phone's antenna and the sky for a signal to travel at the speed of light to the number you've dialed. Iridium is generally seen as the industry standard network and is probably the way to go if you want quality and choice. They run a Constellation 66 satellites and each satellite alone covers an area of 6 million square miles. Needless to say, Iridium has truly global coverage. They also have seven spare satellites at a lower orbit ready to compensate if one of the main ones is put out of action somehow. As sat networks go, Iridium's calls and texts are relatively cheap, free to send a text to any Iridium number from their website, and incoming calls are free. And they offer a wide range of products, including GPS and internet services, as well as voice and text communications. They are standard use in America and British Armed Forces. When buying satellite communications equipment, it is worth considering how you want to use the service. And so, what kit will best suit you? Sat phones are great, but if you know you will only be sending short messages as check-ins or distress calls, then a text-only unit might work better. Or maybe you want to carry both, like the recent Golden Globe race entrants have been. If you want to cover all the bases, you can just take a good laptop and a mobile phone with an internet calling service like WhatsApp or Telegram and use a satellite only for internet connectivity so you can do everything. All right, next are PLBs and EPIRBs. PLB stands for Personal Locator Beacon. 
They are radio devices designed to locate a person in danger. They transmit a distress signal and a GPS location to Ghost Pass Sarsat and cover most of the world on land and at sea. Apart from that, there, is, there isn't much you need to know. Just stop reading and go and buy one. If you go decide to use a PLB, you must register it personally with the relevant authority, which in America is NOAA or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Now, EPIRB stands for Emergency Position Indicating Radio Beacon. They are built to much higher standard of ruggedization than PLBs because they are intended for use at sea far offshore. They are self-writing, buoyant, can activate automatically on submersion, and will send a distress location signal with a precision of 12 miles for 48 hours. If you're ever going out of sight of land, it's really worth having one with you. And then next are walkie-talkies. Now, for most standard medium-distance comms purposes, what you really need is a walkie-talkie. These are purpose-built for short-range voice communication between people who don't need or want to learn about complex radios or procedures. Most American walkie-talkies use what are called GMRS and FRS frequencies. In the U.S., the radio band around 462 to 467 MHz, the ultra-high frequency or UHF, is shared by General Mobile Radio Service, GMRS, and Family Radio Service, FRS. Now, officially, you need a license to be allowed to operate on them, but attaining one is not difficult and might be worth it if you meet a zealous police officer. Anyone with a license and immediate family of theirs may communicate between themselves for personal or business purposes, so your kids will be allowed to use the radios too without needing a license. When buying walkie-talkies, the first thing to consider is range. Manufacturers will give you the greatest figure for this they can so it will be a measurement of possible range in a flat, open space. Hills, trees, large rocks, or buildings will cut this down a lot. So go for the one with the greatest range and, of course, the greatest battery life capacity. Now be aware, though, that the range will always be fairly limited on walkie-talkies and only a more powerful radio with a bigger antenna can change that. On top of that, of course, extra features are great. Some walkie-talkies are waterproof, which is very useful if outdoor for any length of time. Some float, which is good if you'll be on the water, and dual watch, that's the capacity to listen to two frequencies at once, can be very useful. Radio communications overall is a huge topic, well beyond the scope of this article. If you want to learn more, there is a whole forum dedicated to the radio communication side of prepping and survival. It's called Radio Preppers. And so there is a link to that. So let's briefly talk about alphabets and languages. The first one is Morse code. Named for Samuel Morse, an inventor of the telegraph, Morse code is not a signaling medium in itself. It's a system of symbols which can be used to represent letters and numbers in messages using long and short pulses of on and off. This could be covering and uncovering or turning on and off a pocket flashlight. You should always have one as part of your EDC or a lamp, long and short beeps of a horn or other sound device or a whistle or even blinking your eyes. Yes, seriously, U.S. prisoner of war Jeremiah Denton repeatedly blinked his eye during a staged TV interview to spell out torture. 
So the authorities back home would know that the Vietnamese were torturing the American POWs. The basic signs of Morse code are, and so again, guys, there's the, the list of Morse code. I'm not going to get into that. And uh, there's information about Morse code. The numerals are here, even punctuation, if you want to get into that. So finally, there are pro signs. These are conventionally agreed shorthands for commonly sent messages or phrases in Morse to save you from keying the whole lot every time you need it. Now, when transmitting pro signs, don't include a space between the letters. Instead, run all of the dits and daws together. There are many pro signs, far too many to show here, but some common ones are probably useful to know. And so again, there are uh, all these pro signs are here that you can check out. If you decide to learn Morris, then by far the best way to do so is the Koch method. It may seem hard and dull to begin with, but it will pay dividends in terms of ability in the long run. An excellent free training website can be found here. So there's a link for you there. Next is the Polybius Square, also known as NOT code. Like Morse code, the Polybius Square is a way of encoding letters in on and off signals. Crucially though, its use does not necessitate having long and short signals, but can be used with only one type of signal, dif differentiated by the length of time in between. The system works by putting all the letters used into a square grid, usually a square, but actually any grid would work and then expressing each as numerical coordinates. The most common configuration for English is, and then there is a grid here that will let you see what the most common configuration is. And then it says here, C and K share a square because the standard alphabet is 26 characters and the square only has 25 cells. Another common conflation is I and J. Now the square can be expanded to include the numerals 0 through 9, which makes it 36 cells, which is actually 6 by 6. If no, then the lowered numbers can be signaled as a group of just that number of signals because it's much quicker to spell 100 or 100 than to give 100 blasts on a horn and for higher numbers, the receiver is very likely to miscount. As a standard, you always give the horizontal coordinates first so for example, L would be expressed as flash, pause, flash, flash, flash. The flashes could be flashes from a flashlight, knocks on a drain pipe, the squares often used in prisons, or sounds on a foghorn. Next is the semaphore. A semaphore is a way of encoding letters in different postures with flags, discs, batons, or even open hands. At C, the traditional flags used are the Oscar flag, a rectangular split in half, top, right to bottom, left, with the upper part being red and the lower yellow. And on land, the Papa flag, which is a white square inside of a blue square. The standard English alphabet signals can be found here. Now, somewhat less in-depth, but specific to emergency signaling, this video is a good example of a semaphore in practice. So there's a video here, how to send a rescue signal by semaphore. Then there's hand signals in sign language. Hand signals in sign language can be a great way to communicate quickly and discreetly. The interesting thing about sign language is that they must be seen to be understood and sight is directional. If someone makes a noise near you, it doesn't matter which direction they are in, you will still hear it. 
whether it's behind you, off to one side, or in front. But to see something, it has to be in front of you, otherwise you just don't notice it. So generally, you hear what goes in on a broader physical range than what you see. This means that spoken languages are great if you need to give a speech or give orders to people all around you or shout at someone whose back is turned to or grab their attention, but not much good for being private. Sign languages are great for this, though, since you only see them if you are watching and even might not understand. Now, complex, full-blown sign languages are great tools and can convey anything a spoken language can, but will take a long time to learn. A quicker and easier way to derive a similar benefit is to prearrange a simple set of easily identifiable signs within your group for things you think you might need. For example, many armed forces have signs for go, stay, rally, etc., but not hot chocolate, because that would be unnecessary. Simple group movements like go, stay, run, move, slowly, quietly, fire, etc. And questions about these, like what are we doing next and where, are probably a good place to start. Tactical and military groups the world over use systems like this, and there is a great rundown of a lot of them here. So there is a video called Tactical Hand Signals Part 1. Then there's Passive Signals. Now, passive signals are signals which require no continuous action or input from you to keep working. Things like street signs or writing in the sand. By their nature, they will probably expend less energy and possibly less time than more active methods. Making a fire and keeping it alight takes a lot of hard work, but once built, a Karen or a colorful flag will stay put doing its thing for a long time. Now, before anything else, the first passive signal to consider is your clothing. So you're trapped in a forest with a broken leg and can't move. If you're wearing camouflage, nobody's going to spot you for days, but a bright orange coat is a great locator. This is why civilian hiking gear, especially survival gear, is generally manufactured in very bright colors for people to pick each other out on mountains and against slopes It's also why military gear is manufactured to look as much like the environment as possible because the military wants to hide. Of course, circumstances may constrain you from wearing bright colors if you do need to hide, like from animals, for hunting, or from other people for survival, etc. But it's a worthy consideration at least. As a side note, even the military sometimes uses passive signaling on their clothing, Soldiers often wear cat's eyes, small pairs of simple luminous symbols on their back during night patrols so that the people immediately behind them can see them and identify their function with different symbols corresponding to medics, IC, etc. The next set of passive symbols to consider is trails. Leaving a marked trail behind you for others to follow can be very useful if you are traveling in a spread out group. Simple markers like cairns, small piles of stones balanced on top of each other, or sticks left crossed in the path will confirm that you're going in the right direction, but only if you're actually going in the right direction. Now, generally, better are directional signs like sticks arranged in arrows, trails of different sized stones, like follow like an arrow, go in the direction of the stones going from largest to smallest, or knotted grass or brush with the tail of the knot indicating the direction of travel. Now, leaving a trail like this should not be confused with trailblazing, 
though both are certainly worth knowing about. Trailblazing is the use of conventional set of symbols to mark where formally defined trails, think national trails or ones with official recognition, begin, turn, and end. The beginning of the trail is marked by a single blaze, a mark, like a scratch, a scar, a spray-painted shape, etc., above a horizontal pair, and the end is the same symbol reversed. Continue straight is generally signified by a single blaze and a turn by a single blaze with another one above it, offset in the direction of the turn. A vertical pair with a signal blaze off to one side indicates a fork in the path to that side. Be careful though, because this system has regional variations which can include the same symbol for different meetings. Always check with local officials before you blaze trails or before you try to read blazing, as local convention may be different to what you're used to. Ground-to-air symbols can also be considered passive signals, though they are discussed separately above. And then whistling. Whistling might not strike as a serious skill as such, but it can be really useful. For one, consider that a small, cheap plastic whistle kept on your keys will probably carry for over a mile in the right terrain. You could prearrange with your group what the next whistle means, or it could be useful as a means of pinpointing you if you need rescuing and the teams are in the area but can't get your exact location. If you don't already have one on you, a simple whistle can be made by taking a hollow tube, stoppering one end, stoppering the other end but for a tiny gap at the top, and finally cutting a notch also at the top through the wall of the whistle. Adding extra holes along its length after the notch will allow you to vary the pitch. This video goes through the process for making a whistle. So there is a woodcraft, or the video is called Woodcraft, How to Carve a Whistle. Now whistling is a sound signal, so it can be very useful when visibility of signals or visibility in general is poor or entirely gone. A more signal flashed on torch is great at night, but almost invisible against brightly lit surroundings during the day. A whistled signal, however, would work in both instances, provided that sound wasn't obscured too. Of course, this is also true of all sound signals. To this day, ships use horn blasts to communicate in fog. Then, of course, there is whistling with just your body. Whistling by pursing your lips is great, but if you can learn to whistle with your fingers, it's well worth it. It carries further and the tone tends to be shriller so people hear it better. It's also just cool. In theory, you could whistle Morse code to transmit more complex messages or just agree in advance with your team a system of short and long blasts which mean different things. If you want to get really advanced, you'll have to train the rest of your team too. You could learn the whistle language developed by the La Gomera, though that is somewhat beyond the scope of this article. So there is an, uh, a video here called Whistled Language of the Island of La Gomera. So uh, very interesting there. So let's go ahead and close this article out. Final words are this. Signaling is one of the most complex and most overlooked survival skills, but it's worth putting in the time and the effort. There is never much use in staying alive if nobody is coming to find you. Two general, I see, I just don't agree with that one right there. All right, uh, continuing on on that one. Two general points applying to all signaling systems is if you want to set up a group-wide signaling system, make sure it isn't too complex 
for everyone in the group to learn and to use relatively quickly. Having said that, remember that the more variables there are in a system, the more possibilities there are, so the quicker and nuanced the communications can be. You have to strike a balance. In an urban environment, you will sur be surrounded by buildings and other structures, so any form of signaling which relies on line of sight or visibility, like flags, smokes, and fires, will be obscured and useless, and most would seem out of place anyway. Loud noises can still be useful over short range, and trails can be left as marks on buildings, much like hobo signs. If the grid isn't down, then cell phone coverage will normally be good, so this is probably a good bet, and good quality walkie-talkies will likely have decent range here too. They're good enough to be used by security guards and law enforcement, so they're probably good enough for you. In a rural setting, a good radio with good range and long battery life is a must. Satellite phones and flares for the whole party too if you're going any distance away from a safe haven. In this case, knowing ways to use your kit and what is around you to make simple emergency signals is probably going to pay the best in the long run. Learn trail signs, have a fire and or whistle signal system agreed, and something more complex like a semaphore if you think your radio might fail. All right. So a little bit longer article than normal. I just want to touch on a couple of things. I think that the, the PB, let me see, let me make sure I get that. Well, first of all, let me say this. Phones, I always think are great to have. And so I, I liked what the, he was saying here that even if you think you're going out into the woods, into the forest, it's, you know, you, your phone probably could catch a signal every once in a while. And uh, I have a funny story Back in the day when we first started going to my dad's property, um, none of our phones would work. And one time we went, my, my son went, I had given him my old Blackberry. And for whatever reason, you know, we had to stand on one part of the property to be able to call out. He was walking everywhere. And I'm like, how in the world? I'm like, are you really calling? And for whatever reason, I mean, he was talking. He was walking all over the property, talking to his little girlfriend, and it was working. And so, I mean, we just used his phone when we needed to call home because it didn't matter where we were. So it, it's funny because some phones will just be able to pick up that way. And I don't know if they make them anymore. I know, I know probably about 10 years ago when you looked at cell phones, there was an analog uh, option to it. And then, of course, you had, uh, you know, what, what you have nowadays. And so sometimes some of the phones could do both. And the analog, if your phone could do analog, you could pick up a lot more of the network and it just seemed to work better. But of course, it, a lot of the times it wasn't as nice of a phone. I guess it was an older technology or whatever. But anyway, that that worked, that seemed to work as well. So cell phones, I think, need to always be there. I think the satellite phone, especially if you, and I hadn't looked into prices and it's been a long, long time. But if you are able to do text messaging free, I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty valuable. So that might be something that you might want to look into the, the sat phones. But then the POBs, if you are going to be the, the personal locator beacons, if you're going to be out there in the woods somewhere, if that's something that you do and you go deep, right, you, you're going deep in there, maybe you go off trail, that's probably something that you need and something that would be a very good investment because if you're going out there and someone is hurt 
and you want to be able to get a rescue. And uh, I, I just think that that's something that anybody who is very serious about being out there in the woods probably needs to have. And then walkie talkies, we used that one year going skiing and we could talk to each other all up and down the mountain. I thought that was pretty, pretty cool. And uh, I always think a whistle should be part of your EDC or your uh, definitely your survival kit. And you should have that available. But then doing, you know, building, being able to build a fire, a big one and a smoke fire, you know, that would that will make a lot of smoke would be good. So, I, again, I suggest checking out that video. So a lot of information here at modernsurvivalonline.com. Like always, I'm going to link to this article in the show notes so you can come check it out and all the videos and all the charts and everything that are here. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 498. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Hey, don't forget, if you want to subscribe to the show, head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And that way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. And take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect in the show notes. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government, grid, or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.